0: Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews chapter 4. We're looking at verses 14 through 16 this evening. Again, that's Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Oh, Father, we do pray that you would uh, reveal to us by your Spirit the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory of the one who passed through the heavens, the one who is our great high priest, the Son of God, that we would behold his glory with the eyes of faith, that we would see that he who has passed through the heavens is also he who is tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And may it be that we would hold fast this confession of faith firm to the end, and that by your grace. For Lord, we do ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's important to remember as we continue to make our way through the book of Hebrews what the purpose of the letter is. You remember, the purpose is to encourage Christians to hold fast to the faith. Christians who were being challenged in the faith, who were being tempted to turn away from the faith, uh, there were lots of arguments that were being given uh, from the world as to why they are to turn away, why they are to compromise. And the point of the book of Hebrews is to ground these particular Christians and really the entire church uh, in the faith uh, such that they would have the, the ability to stand firm in the midst of all the trials and persecutions that they were facing. We know from chapter 10 that... Uh, those who were reading this letter were facing great persecution. They were facing uh, great challenge, uh, not only intellectually, but there was um, a cost, a a very real, even material cost, a physical cost uh, to holding to the faith well. And um, as we think about the exhortations that are made throughout, we, we can make a connection between the sufferings that the people of God were going through and the temptation to turn away. And really this is something that happens in, um, uh, always whenever there is persecution. Persecution, um, when, when you think of what is Satan trying to accomplish by persecuting and hurting Christians, it's not really so much to kill them. Um, Satan himself knows that if a Christian simply dies, he is saved. Uh, the victory of the Christian is in maintaining the faith firm to the end. The, the big challenge that is that we face with regard to persecution is, uh, is will we be able to maintain our faith as the world presses back against us? And that is what the author is trying to, uh, to get these Christians to see, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and to exhort them in light of his glory, you are never even to think about turning away from the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Now, as we've seen, these exhortations really form the, the, the basis for the entire letter to the book of Hebrews. There are a number of exhortations, and always these exhortations are grounded in theological points that are being made. So there is, um, you know, you are never to turn away. You are to hold fast to confession, as we see in this particular text, and that because of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And so we've seen in chapter 1 that Christ is the Son of God. We've seen in chapter 2 that he is the king to whom everything is subjected. We've seen in chapter 3 that he is the prophet who is far more glorious than Moses. And now we see, beginning with the end of chapter 4, and what's really going to take us all the way from the end of chapter 4 into uh, chapter uh, 10, verse 25. We see the Lord Jesus Christ as uh, the high priest. Now, the reason I'm going over this, this kind of broad overview of the entire letter is because this passage is itself very transitional. Uh, this, is, this is the point where the letter transitions into a formal discussion of the Lord Jesus Christ as our great high priest, and this is really the longest subject uh, that the author to the book of Hebrews will have in the, the, the entire letter. Again, from chapters 5, all of chapter 5, uh, all the way to most of chapter 10, we have this discussion of the Lord Jesus Christ as our great priest high priest. And this understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ as our high priest uh, forms the basis of a number of exhortations in the book of Hebrews. Now, one of the other things that that I've noted a couple of times here at this point in this series is that many of these exhortations, as as I'm sure you're aware of if you've you've been with us, many of these exhortations are quite strong. Uh, They are quite strong. Uh, Many are warnings about the great sin of turning away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that sense, they can be, uh, they're threats. They, they are very strong in this regard in terms of it being uh, convicting. However, there are also a number of exhortations that are also quite strong as well that are meant to be encouragements, uh, exhorting you to hold fast to Christ, not in line of the potential for the punishment of sin. Now, that is all over the place in the book of Hebrews, but also to hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ because of his glory, because of the greatness of of him as our savior and this is one of these uh, these exhortations this is one of the exhortations that is meant to be an encouragement the idea is you have such a great savior you have such a great savior do not ever think about turning away from him he is our great high priest who has passed through the heavens the eternal son of god who who knows what it is to suffer in every way as we are yet without sin if you have such a great high priest here is the encouragement do not turn away from him. Hold fast to this confession that you have. Now, you'll notice as well here with chapter four, verses 14 to 16, that there are in fact two exhortations that are given. Uh, The first is to hold fast to the confession that we have. And the second is uh, to approach the throne of grace. Let us then approach the throne of grace uh, with confidence, with boldness. And um, in, in both cases, the exhortations are preceded by the reasons why we are to keep um, uh, to, to, uh, to abide by these exhortations. So that, so um, because we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, we have to hold fast our confession of faith. Because we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with, our, with us in our weaknesses, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. Uh, that's the structure of this particular passage. Now, how do these two exhortations relate to each other? Because they're not, they're not exactly the same in terms of uh, what the author is trying to do with them. Um, John Owen gives a, a very good summary of uh, the relationship between these two exhortations. And he he'll say this: the, the first one in verse 14, Holding Fast the Confession of Faith. Uh, this is really a summary of the purpose of the entire letter. The entire letter of the book of Hebrews is basically hold fast the, to the confession of faith because of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That would be a very good one-sentence summary of the book of Hebrews. It is the aim over and over again of many exhortations in the book of Hebrews, and clearly is the aim of the entire letter. The second exhortation is related to the first in that it is an, exhorta- an exhortation containing, as John Owen says, in a special means conducing unto that end, which is a bit of flowery language. The idea is that approaching the throne of grace is the means by which we are to hold fast to the confession of faith that we have. Um, we must hold fast to our confession of faith. How are you to do that? You are to do that by always approaching the throne of grace with confidence in all struggles, and all difficulties, you are to approach the throne of grace uh, with confidence. And so we'll look at this passage then a little more carefully under just those two headings, holding fast our confession in verse 14, and then in verses 15 and 16, approaching the throne of grace uh, with boldness. And in each of these, there is a reason followed by uh, the exhortation. So we'll look then again first at holding fast uh, our confession. Now notice Again, the first thing that's said, the reason you are to hold fast to this confession of faith, you have a high priest, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Now here here we have um, the author returning to the theme of the Lord Jesus Christ as our great high priest. This was introduced at the end of chapter two, and as I said, will be the the main contents of the letter all the way to the end of chapter two. Uh, 10. Because of this, because this this passage is so transitional, and because it is a summary of the things that come before, and also an introduction to the things that come after, it's fitting for us to understand what the author is saying here by what follows and what proceeds uh, in this particular letter. So when we think of Jesus as the great high priest, again, this is going to be something that will be developed in much, much greater detail in uh, the weeks to come in the rest of the book of Hebrews. But the idea with regard to him being a great high priest is this: that he is, he is perfect in every way. He does not need, as it will say in chapter five, he does not have any need to have any sins offered on his own behalf. He does not come, as it says in in other chapters as well, he does not need to come in the blood of another in order to approach the throne of grace. But he comes through the sacrifice of his own blood, and he does not enter into a a type of the heavenly sanctuary, but he himself by his death, passes through the very heavens itself, appears before God himself at his throne, and offers the sacrifice of himself to perfectly cleanse us from all of our sins. He far surpasses the Levitical high priest in that he is not prevented by death from serving, continuing to serve as they were, and he far surpasses them in that he is the priest who has been established as the priest after the order of Melchizedek, always continuing, and having this priesthood confirmed with the oath of God, who has confirmed with the oath that he would be the son perfected forever, the priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is, as it says in chapter 1, the eternal son of God, the one fully equal with God, as the one who is, as we confess, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. The point of all of these truths, then, He is a great high priest, he has passed through the heavens, he is the Son of God. The point of all these things is to say, in light of these great truths, you are to hold fast to the confession of faith. You have a great and glorious Savior. Whatever the world might be pushing back on you on, whatever sufferings you may have, whatever ideology there is that's tempting you to turn away, whatever names you are called, whatever reproaches you bear, you are to always remember that they are nothing in comparison with the greatness of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has passed through the heavens uh, for your sake, that he might save you from your sins. And therefore, brothers and sisters, you are to hold fast to the confession of faith. Now, one of the things that's implied with the idea of holding fast to this confession of faith is that this must be done uh, before man— it must be done before others uh, we are not to say that we have this faith hidden in our hearts and then deny the faith before others because we're afraid of what will happen if we publicly confess it before others uh, that is not what we are called uh, to do it, it, now uh, this this implies as well that there may be that, that uh, w- with regard to the, the people that the author is speaking to that there were going to be challenges there were going to be challenges to the faith of the Christians that were uh, receiving all this persecution. They were being tempted to turn back. They were being told, you need to believe something other than that Jesus really is this great high priest who has passed through the heavens and who is the eternal uh, Son of God. Now, it's important for us to to understand or to ask the question, um, with regard to holding fast to a confession of faith, what is it that we are to confess? what is it that we actually confess that when we talk about being faithful to God, uh, there are a number of things that we could say. Uh, one, the in this particular text, the reasons why we are to hold fast to the confession of faith in verse 14 also is something of the, the content of the confession of faith that we are to have. That is to say, we must confess that Jesus is our great high priest. We must confess that he has passed through the heavens. We must confess that he is in fact the eternal Son of God. We we could also say with regard to uh, chapter 3, verse 1, which has a a similar statement with regard to holding fast this confession of faith. We must uh, confess that the Lord Jesus Christ is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Him being the apostle means the one sent from God. He's the one sent from God, and the high priest of our confession means that we confess him as such. We confess him to be that for us, that we have no hope outside of this one who was sent uh, from God to us. Now, all these things are things that we are to confess, We could also say a good confession of our faith would be the truth of the creeds as faithful summaries of the Christian faith. Um, The reason this is significant is because um, the reason why we have those creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and others, uh, the reason why we have these creeds is because there were challenges in the history of the church to the faith. And the fathers, in holding fast to the confession of faith, would develop these creeds to say, this is the thing that we publicly confess to be true against all of the errors of the world, and against all of those who are upsetting the faith. And so this was, the the creeds were really developed in a way that's um, really parallel to what the author to the Hebrews is speaking of here. We hold fast to these things and affirm publicly these truths against all of the pressures of the world. Now, because of this, what this also means is that holding fast to our confession of faith also means that we must be prepared to stand up for the truths of the Scripture at any point at which they are being attacked in any age, and particularly in our own age. There's always the greatest need for us to stand up for the truth of the Scripture on the points that are being attacked in our own day. And so, for instance, we have things like, uh, like in the 20th century, there were um, things like the reality of miracles, the virgin birth of Christ, the resurrection from the dead, and inspiration. Those are just a small uh, sampling of the kinds of things that were being challenged actively. And so it would have been, a, it was particularly important. You know, you could get a lot of other things right, but if you got those things wrong in the 20th century, you were really far off base because those were the, the particular points of attack. And so the world was attacking there. And because the world was attacking there, that was the place where we needed to hold fast. To our confession of faith firm to the end. And with regard to today, if you were to ask, well, what is it today? Today, it's believing that the Bible is truly the Word of God, and as the Word of God, therefore, transcends any experience of any given person. Whatever someone may say that they have by way of experience, their own truth, the Bible transcends that and speaks truth that is objectively obligatory to believe. For every single person in every single context, it means affirming that men and women are distinct, that as made in the image of God, that they, in this sense, have a rule uh, uh, overall, uh, and uh, yet that even though men and women both have rules, have a rule overall of creation, which is in fact being denied today um, with regard to um, things like uh, postmodernism. Uh, by denying man is made in the image of God, you also deny that man is distinct from the creation. Therefore, man is just like all other kinds of animals. We must affirm God, man was made in the image of God. The body is important. Men and women are distinct. Man being made in the image of God has rule over all of creation. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord over all. He is the Lord over everyone, regardless of what culture you are from, what race you are, what ethnicity, what gender you are, There is no truth that can be adapted to those particular realities that negates the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is still the Lord, and what he speaks is objectively true in all of these situations. This is the confession that we are to hold to today. Uh, These are the particular points of attack, and these are the things that we must hold to if we, in fact, are to be faithful. Now, as I mentioned, there is, with regard to what it means actually to hold fast, we think about that, that's the content of holding fast. We think about what it means to hold fast. There are really two parts to it. There's an outward part and an inward part. As I mentioned, the outward part is quite important. We must be willing to confess before men that we believe these things. We believe them, and we are willing to suffer for the sake of these truths. If we are directly asked and asked to give an account We will not compromise these truths for the sake of avoiding pain. That is what we are declaring, and that is what is required of us if we are going to hold fast our confession. Now, again, there's two parts to holding fast our confession. There must be an inward faith. Uh, We must believe these things from the heart. And then secondly, there must be an an outward confession. We must demonstrate the, the truth of the inwardness of our faith by outwardly confessing Christ before men, you remember what what the Lord Jesus Christ himself has said, If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. Both the outward and the inward need to be there uh, need to be there in any confession of faith to have the outward without the inward is hypocrisy. if you claim to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have an outward profession of faith, but you do not have the inward true faith that is uh, in fact, uh, hypocrisy. It's not to be truly believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you claim to have the inward, you say that I believe in my heart, but you know, I'm just going to keep it secret and I'm not going to be willing to, to, to speak about this with anyone else. That is, so to have the inward, to claim they have the inward without the outward is cowardice. And these are, these are the reasons why you have to have both. If you say that you truly believe, but you're unwilling to have that faith be displayed publicly by holding fast to Christ, then what this means is, as the, as the Apostle John has said, in John chapter 12, as he talked about, many people who were, um, who believed in their hearts that Jesus was really the Christ, but they would not confess him before men because they feared being thrown out of the synagogues. They feared what would happen if they made this confession public. They, they thought they had the inward. They were scared to declare the outward. And what John says is of these, the reason they could not do that is because they loved the glory of the world more than that which comes, uh, they loved the glory of man more than that which comes from the Lord. They loved the glory of man rather than the glory of the Lord, and therefore they were unwilling to make this confession publicly. But brothers and sisters, what is ultimately required is that you would both believe inwardly the truths of the gospel, that you would hold fast to them in your heart at especially the points, every point in the scripture, but especially the points that are being attacked today, that you would hold fast to these things in your hearts and that you would confess this before men. That there would, if you are, if it comes down to it, will you lose your job or will you deny the Lord Jesus Christ? You will publicly say, "'I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, come what may. "'I will continue to believe in him, "'and I'm willing to confess this before men.'" This is what it means to hold fast the confession. You are to do it because you have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now in verses 15 and 16, again, the, the exhortation is related to approaching the throne of grace. You are to approach the throne of grace. And remember, the idea with regard to the connection between the, the second exhortation and the first is that uh, as we think about what, it re, what is required for us to, to hold to our confession well, we recognize that in order to do that, we must approach the throne of grace regularly uh, in our time of need, in our weakness. Um, this is where these Hebrew Christians were. They were in great weakness. They were in trouble. And so the author says, hold fast to your confession and always approach the throne of grace with confidence, that you might find grace and mercy to help you in your time of need. Now, the reason you are to do this is because you have a high priest who is able to sympathize with you in your weaknesses because he was tempted in all points as you were and yet is without sin. So this is said in two ways in verse 15 first, negatively and then positively. Uh, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but We rather have one who was positively uh, tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. So the thing being asserted is that Christ has compassion for us, uh, and we know that he can have compassion for us and understand what we're going through because he knows what it is to suffer, and even he knows what it is to be tempted to sin. So now this uh, leads us to a couple of questions. How is it that Christ can be tempted to sin truly? Um, and this is wrapped up on another question, which is, is it possible for Christ to sin? And the answer to that second question is no. It is not possible for Christ to sin, as the, as the author points out here. Um, he was tempted in as we are yet without sin. The possibility of him sinning is excluded because he is, in fact, the eternal son of God, and God cannot sin. And yet, uh, what does it mean that he could be tempted? Now, when we think about temptations, there are three sources, pot- pot- uh, potential sources of temptation. You can either be tempted from the world, the flesh, or the devil. And of course, oftentimes, you're tempted from all three at once. But the idea is that in a temptation, these three are are the things that are usually present. Notice that two of them are external. Um, You can be tempted from things outside of you. The world can tempt you. The devil can tempt you. Uh, And then there's one that's internal, which is your flesh. The the remaining indwelling sin can be part of the temptation as that uh, becomes inflamed. Now of course, with regard to Christ, we say that he is tempted, but he can of course only be tempted by the external pressures of temptation. He can't be tempted by the sinful flesh within him because he doesn't have sinful flesh. Um, in Romans 8, Paul affirms that Christ was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, but what Paul means when he says in the likeness of sinful flesh is that he was made in a body that are all of the natural weaknesses of a, of a fallen man. Uh, his body would have deteriorated and grown old just like yours would. His body was subject to disease just like yours is. His body was subject uh, to hunger and thirst and weariness just like yours is. And insofar then as Christ was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, it does in fact uh, increase the significance of his temptations. It shows that his temptations were in fact just like yours. And it even shows that his temptations um, were quite significant in terms of what he went through. So he was tempted in, in this sense from the world, from the devil, and in situations where he knows exactly the kinds of weaknesses that you feel as one who is living in a fallen body. That's what it means that he was tempted like us in every way, yet without sin, and that he was, in fact, made in the likeness of sinful flesh itself. And so when you think about this, with regard to his temptation in the desert by the devil, he knew what it was to be tempted. He was tempted by the devil. He's tempted by the world in that respect. He also knew exactly what it feels like to be extraordinarily hungry and to know that if he were to give in, that hunger would be immediately satisfied. And that was part of his temptation to undergo that particular uh, that particular elements of temptation, even that, that, that inward, um, the, the emotions of knowing that that would have been the case. Now, there was no sin even with regard to his emotions, but that was presented to him, and he would have felt that in his body in the exact same way as you do. He would have known the offer, and he would have felt very, real, really, um, the, the understanding very acutely, uh, the weakness of the flesh, the difficulty of having the body begin to fail, and knowing then, in that context, the requirement to yet remain faithful to the Lord anyway. He would have gone through that exactly in the same way you do. And this is the reason why Christ being made in the likeness of sinful flesh, so to speak, uh, makes his temptations even greater than that of Adam. He did not come to us in a body like Adam's that would never have deteriorated. He did not come to us in glorified bodies like what he had after the resurrection of the dead. He came to us in the likeness of sinful flesh to endure temptations that were far greater uh, even than anything that Adam had in the garden. Adam had a perfect situation where there was none of these kind of extraneous things factoring into his temptations. Christ had uh, cried far worse than that. Coming in the likeness of sinful flesh yet without sin, being tempted in every way as we are, and yet never giving in to sin in any way. And therefore, brothers and sisters, this is the way that we can know that he himself knows what it is to go through temptations. Whatever you are facing, you likely have not had the body decaying after 40 days of not eating and drinking and then being tempted by the devil himself coming and appearing to you in bodily form and offering you bread, if you will but turn away from the Lord. You've not had that level of temptation. He knows more than anyone what it is like to go through these temptations. He went through those temptations really as a man and and experienced them as you do and never gave in to them, which means, in terms of the, the strength of temptations, a temptation is only so strong up to the point where you give in. Christ never gave in to any temptation ever in his entire life, which means he took the strength of that temptation all the way up to its maximum and then still said no to sin every single time. And so when we think then about what it means that Christ was able to be tempted, this really is a great comfort. Brothers and sisters, whatever you are going through, whatever challenge to your faith is coming, Christ knows what it feels like exactly. He knows what it feels like exactly. And in fact, we can even say more than you do. He knows the temptation. And therefore, he is able to sympathize with you. This is going to form a key part of the author's argument in chapter 5. It is necessary for a high priest that he is able to sympathize with the people that he represents. It's necessary. If you're going to be a high priest, you have to be able to sympathize. And what was helpful in the Old Testament is that those high priests, they had their own weaknesses. Now, it's helpful in order for them to be able to sympathize with others, but it was also bad in that their weaknesses were sinful. So they had sinful weaknesses, but it at least enabled them to understand what it was like to to be in the position of sinners. Christ, amazingly, as the eternal Son of God, takes on flesh and endures temptations in every way, as you did, yet without sin, such that he is able at the same time to fully understand everything that you're going through, and yet also remain perfectly unblemished as the spotless Lamb of God. Therefore, being able to be himself the spotless sacrifice that is offered on your behalf uh, to God. This is the high priest that you have. And if this is the case, then there ought to be nothing that keeps you from him. There ought to be nothing that keeps you from going to him. There's no sense in which you need to be, you know, um, embarrassed or to think, you know, well, Christ doesn't know what I'm going through. Um, You know, very often there can be a loneliness that we have, when we're talking to someone about what we're going through and they can't identify with us in any way. You know, I just just don't know what it's like. And yet there's a sense of fellowship that we have with people who have stood with us in the trenches and who have gone through exactly the same things that we have gone through. And brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ is like that. He is like that. He has been with us in the trenches. He has gone through it exactly as you have. And therefore, you are always to go to God in prayer. You are to approach the throne of uh, of grace with confidence, knowing that you come to the Father through the Son who is able to sympathize with all of your weaknesses. And this is the exhortation that's given in verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly in light of the high priest that we have, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, the the idea of of coming boldly to the throne of grace, again, this is going to be something that's going to be worked out in the rest of the book of Hebrews with uh, quite a lot of detail. But the idea is is that uh, the throne of grace is the throne in heaven, uh, in the Holy of Holies. So in the tabernacle, which was a picture of heaven, there was over the Ark of the Covenant a seat with nothing on it to represent that uh, God cannot be imaged, and you can't see God in that way. And so um, there would be this throne that would be over the Ark and that was the mercy seat. So you could come to God in the mercy seat and you could then uh, put- make petitions to him in this regard. The problem is that only the high priest had access to this mercy seat, and that only once a year, and that only with particular sacrifices that were very regimented. And so that, this was something that wasn't open to everybody. But what the author is saying here is that because of the work of Christ, you, brothers and sisters, now have direct access to God in the Holy of Holies, not in the type of the heavenly uh, reality, but to heaven itself, approaching God directly through this great high priest, and you find God as one who is merciful and gracious to you in everything, who sent his Son to bear the full weight of your sins, to be tempted as every, in every way as you are yet without sin, so that you would be able to make use of this great privilege of coming to him in prayer. That is what you have as a privilege for being a New Testament believer. It's really an amazing thing to think, brothers and sisters. You know, if anyone in the Old Testament would be told that they could have this kind of privilege, they would immediately be in awe of what you have. And they would make use of it all the time. All the time. It would never grow old. Every Old Testament saint in the Old Testament, besides the high priest and the priests, were relegated to the outer courts. They could go no further under any circumstances ever. But brothers and sisters, you all the time, all the time have access to the Holy of Holies, direct access to God himself by the Spirit. And you're told by the author here, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, that when you come to God, you find mercy and grace you'll find mercy and grace from him. He sent his son because he's merciful and gracious. And therefore, in all of your time of need, when you come to him, you'll find mercy and grace. Now, if you were here with us for the morning uh, sermon, you'll remember that um, it's good to, to define mercy and grace. Remember that mercy means God's love towards those who are in misery. When you think of the misery of this world, you come to God and you see that he will give you mercy. You think of grace grace in the fight against your sins, in the struggle of your sins. You can come to God to find grace, both for the forgiveness of your sins as you fall, and even the grace to help you to grow that you would not continue in, in those sins. Uh, those are the things that you have from God. In weakness of circumstances, you, you know that He is merciful. When you feel the weight of your own sins, you know that He is gracious. Let neither your circumstances— nor your sins keep you from the throne of grace, but rather approach this throne all the days of your life. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is not meant to be a display of your great strength with regard to your faith. When we think about the need to hold fast to our confession of faith, it's not because you are strong and you're not not going to succeed because you are strong. You're going to succeed because you recognize your weakness you come to the throne of grace often. God then gives you the strength, and then it's displayed to the whole world that though you are weak, in your weakness you find strength because of the grace and mercy of God. And therefore, whenever, whenever there's a Christian who, who perseveres to the end, the praise and the glory always redounds not to man, but to God, because he is the one that does the work. He is the one that provides the mercy and grace for help in our time of difficulty. Do not forgo these privileges, brothers and sisters. Do not fail to come uh, to God. May it be that God would grant you the grace to hold fast to your confession, to the confession of your faith in the midst of every trying circumstance, that he might give you zeal for prayer, such that you always depend on God for the strength to stand. And may it be that you continue to stand all the way to the end of your lives. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you that you are our great God, that we can approach your throne of grace with confidence. What a wonderful thing. Lord, the high priest in the Old Testament had to approach your throne of grace, had to approach just a copy of your throne of grace with great trembling. And yet, Lord, we approach as just normal people your throne of grace with boldness. Lord, it's not because we are bold in ourselves, but because of the great work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see the glory of this work. And may it be that in the midst of of all kinds of trials and temptations, in the midst of all kinds of persecutions and temptations to turn away from the faith, that we would yet maintain our faith firm to the end, that we might receive the crown of life for the Lord, we do ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart that through the preached word, your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.